Good evening, everyone. Uh, it is my delight to welcome you to this fifth pro program in our series of six programs looking at the current uh, situation uh, between Israel and Palestine. My name is Sid Mohn. Uh, I serve as one of the three co-moderators for this series. Uh, my background is with the Christian faith community. Uh, my other two co-moderators are Naveen Khalil, uh, whose background is with the uh, Islamic uh, faith community, and also Larry Feldman as our third co-moderator, whose background is with the Jewish uh, faith community. Since tonight uh, marks the first evening of Hanukkah, I'd like to begin with a prayer uh, that was uh, written by Rabbi uh, Sheila Weinberg, who is uh, from Amherst, Massachusetts. Let's uh, pause uh, for this Hanukkah commemoration. Two people, one land. Three faiths, one root. One earth, one mother. One sky, one beginning, one future, one destiny. One broken heart. One God, we pray to you, grant us a vision of unity. Guide us gently and firmly toward each other, toward peace. Amen. For Christian communities, this also is the season of Advent leading to Christmas. I think it's important for us to be aware that the city of Bethlehem has determined that it will not be celebrating Christmas with festivities this year. The Bethlehem Christmas tree will remain unlit. Uh, there will be few decorations because amidst the darkness of the situation, in Gaza, they feel they have to commemorate uh, the darkness that Palestine is currently experiencing. I've uh, asked Stephen to place in the chat two resources. One is a song from Bethlehem, both in English and Arabic, which expresses uh, hope even amidst this time of uh, deep, deep darkness. And the second is a video uh, produced by UNICEF by one of their staff persons who is in Southern Gaza and experiencing uh, the bombardments that are characterized as being uh, amongst the strongest of the war to date. Where are we now? Uh, we know that some hostages have been released. 140 or so hostages remain. We've received accounts of brutal murders and sexual violence of the 1,200 uh, Israelis who were uh, murdered. Uh, 
We know that about 16,000 uh, residents of Gaza have been uh, killed to date, the majority of them uh, women and children. The UN estimates that up to two thirds of the housing uh, in Northern Gaza has been demolished or uh, rendered uninhabitable. 80% of the residents of Gaza have now been uh, displaced. And the number of journalists killed in Gaza surpasses the number of journalists killed in uh, any conflict since records uh, have been kept. So in that context, uh, we this evening are about to hear voices of individuals who have frontline uh, experience, uh, personal uh, experiences uh, relative uh, to the uh, current situation in Israel and uh, Palestine. The first individual that we will be hearing from, uh, her name, her pseudonym, is uh, Salama, and her interview is video uh, recorded. Uh, she was quite hesitant uh, to appear in uh, this interview out of security concerns, both for herself as well as for her family in Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, she has family also here in uh, Berrien County. Um, before we talked, uh, she informed me that five of her Palestinian colleagues here in the United States uh, were terminated from their jobs as a result of Palestinian statements uh, they made on social media. Um, you will hear the caution in her responses. I can provide a bit more uh, detail than she provides. Uh, an aunt of hers in Gaza was murdered as a result of the bombings, along with five of uh, her children, all of her children, ages 17, 15, 11, seven and five. In the West Bank, uh, where a sizable number of her family uh, resides, she has had a family member who was uh, detained after Israeli soldiers uh, broke down the door of their house, trashed the belongings in the house and uh, carted off uh, the individual and placed in uh, administrative detention. And we'll hear more about that later in the program. So let's pause and listen uh, to uh, the interview, which was recorded last week. Uh, certainly, and to learn from your experiences and your perspectives uh, relative to the situation in, in Gaza, West Bank, and Israel. Uh, 
as a Palestinian American, uh, you bring with you knowledge both of Gaza, of the West Bank, and also life here in the United States. And I recognize that uh, out of security and safety concerns, our discussion won't go into a lot of uh, detail. Yeah. Uh, but as you, I think, and your family have experienced some tragic situations in Gaza. Can you share uh, kind of what happened uh, to your family in Gaza? Yes, of course. Um, so, you know, what's happened in Gaza has been, you know, nothing, I, it's just indescribable. The um, pain and suffering that a lot of people in that region have experienced is 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 just uh, again I it's hard to put into words um, having you know family members and then family friends in the region and and being so tied to Gaza has been difficult to watch from afar um, the communication between family members in Gaza and family friends in Gaza has been really tough especially when everything first happened um, last month. Um, communication, there was a point where communication was just, it, it, we were learning what was happening from meet the media and watching social media. And so when those that were close to us, family members and friends passed away, it was us finding out through, you know, names that were posted on the media um my mother my mother had a really really uh her best one of her best friends lived in Gaza and she found out through the media um and so that has been really tough it's just you you know you don't get to speak to them and see how they're doing or um you know touch base with our family members it's just more so us finding out how what's happening every day by waking up and checking um social media looking at images and videos that the journalists at the re on the region um, are sharing with us. Um, so it's just, it's been really difficult to watch from afar. Uh, we, you know, can only do, we have been doing so much and using our voices and donating and things like that, but you can't help but feel helpless when this is a life that we live and that there's another type of life that they live, you know, there, it's not something that they asked for. Um, mm -hmm. Well, I, I yeah. understand that uh, you had a, a relative who uh, died in the bombings uh, along with uh, five of her children. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. Uh, how tragic that must have been uh, for uh, your family. Uh, uh, what's been the impact uh, on your family with uh, knowing that uh, uh, a family member and her five children uh, all died in uh, in a couple of days. You know, it's it's really hard, um, especially you know it's hard for everyone when when anyone is involved, but especially when children are involved. It's just it's it's just been hard, especially for family members that are in the West Bank, and you know we're you know are, are, are so uh, close just, uh, yet, checking so if you are you know, on the zoom have Thanks. distance between you know them and what's happening and and to have that sort of just abruptly happen um it, it it's just heartbreaking um they didn't get a proper burial proper ceremony nothing like that and so 
um, just for everything to happen so quick, it, it's just been difficult and it's hard to, you know, sit back and take everything in. You just mm -hmm. get frustrated. You're angry. You're upset at the situation and just filled with emotions. And so it's just, it's just hard overall mm -hmm. to digest what's been happening and what has happened. And while much of the media has focused appropriately so on Gaza, I think there's uh, an untold story also about what is happening in the, the West Bank. And again, I think you have had some uh, relatives who um, had their door knocked down and taken off to jail. Uh, can you share a little bit about that? Yes, so we have a very close close relative who has, you know, prior to all of this, has actually served in um, Israeli prison for years, um, for 15 years. And um, so, you know, we have as a family knowledge and experience of what happens behind closed doors. So now with the focus on Gaza, um, there have been a wide arrest in happening in the West Bank, including to one of our relatives who is a child. Um, there has been a lot of arrests happening for absolutely no reason. If you are posting on social media, if you, you know, even try to vocalize, you know, anything about what's going on or feeling for those that are in Gaza, you can be taken at any point. Um, we have family members who were, you know, going somewhere with some of our uncles and at the destination were just pulled to the side, taken to prison. And I think it's just something that, you know, one, the media obviously just isn't focusing on as much, but something that is important because while this is also happening in Gaza, there's just a lot of action that is continuously also happening in the West Bank. Um, and this is, it's not something new, but it's definitely at a heightened um, place, especially with what's been happening in Gaza. You know, as, as you try to envision a, a, a future and a, a future that has kind of peace and security and freedom uh, for both Israelis and Palestinians, uh, what do you think needs to happen for such a future? Uh, to be in place. Yeah, I and you know that 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 answer. I wish it it was. Um, there was an easier explanation or easier answer to give, but honestly, um, I've been to the region myself, and um, I've I've seen the West Bank firsthand. Um, going from one place to another, even if it's a ten minute, you know, walk, ten minute drive, the checkpoints are insane. Um, West Bank is called Occupied West Bank, right? If we want some sort of freedom, some sort of something, Palestine cannot be occupied. Those checkpoints need to need to go away. There needs to be some sort of um, freedom for the Palestinians to truly live their daily lives. If they're continuously under surveillance, continuously under you know checkpoint from one destination to another, the school is 10 minutes away, a 10 minute drive, but I have to go through two checkpoints to get to school. Um, you're always going to see that oppressor as an enemy. Um, once one side isn't so, you know, oppressed, then there won't be the need to continuously resist. And so I think I think that's that's a big thing is is 
there needs to be a middle ground here. We can't place a checkpoint at every destination. And I certainly, certainly believe that um, um, that could be a start to, to something. Do you think a two-state solution is plausible? You know, I, I, um, I've, you know, heard stories from relatives who've lived, who were alive before 1948, and you know, who've passed down their stories to relatives who still remain alive, and you know, maybe weren't around during that time. But um, Israelis and Palestinians used to be able to live door to door, watch each other's children, and and no problem. That was a life that used to be. And I think it can be, um, you know, if 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 the necessary steps are taken. I don't know necessarily about stating, you know, two state solution, but I do think that both can live in the region hand in hand um, if one isn't controlling the other. I don't know if you necessarily would say that that's a two state solution. Having one, you can't really split the region; it is so small. But I think that both can live in the region and coincide if there isn't one powerful government, um, you know, watching over the other and continuously controlling the other. Well, Selma, uh, uh, thanks for your uh, insights, your hope. Uh, and again, our hearts go out to you and your family uh, in the, the grief that uh, you continue to experience. Uh, again, many thanks for this time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, let's uh, move on to a conversation with uh, Hussef. Uh, Hussef uh, is a Christian uh, Palestinian. Uh, Hussef, uh, you are a member of a religious minority uh, in the Holy Land. Uh, a recent letter to President Biden, uh, written by uh, representatives of all uh, major uh, Christian denominations uh, in the United States, raised concerns that the current conflict could result in the elimination of all Christian communities uh, within the Holy Land. As, as someone who grew up uh, in Palestine as a Christian, uh, share what you saw uh, occurring to the Christian Palestinian uh, community uh, during your lifetime. Hello, can you hear me? Yes. Yes, so so the, the Palestinian Christian community is like a, a small minority in the West Bank and in Gaza. And unfortunately, in, in, in one way or another, like the Israeli government and the, uh, the Israeli army doesn't discriminate when it comes to that, uh, to whether you are a Christian or a Muslim, you are a Palestinian or you're a non-Jew, you're a Gentile. And that's how they treat us uh, in the West Bank and Gaza. And this is one of the reasons like they, they were, they bombed like uh, the third oldest church in the Middle East in Gaza, and they killed family members. Uh, uh, like my cousin is married to one, you know, to a woman from Gaza, and she lost two of her sisters and her their families uh, in that attack on the church. They were they were taking shelter at the church, and that's when the 
uh, the church was attacked, and 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 that woman, who's uh, you know my cousin's wife, she she lost uh, two of her sisters and her sister's families. Um, the West Bank, the story is similar. Um, um, you know, you're just an Arab, you're a Palestinian. They they don't discriminate whether you're a Christian or a Muslim. Um, um, like my brother recently, uh, who's a Palestinian Christian, had a similar experience in Israeli jail. I, I know when you approached me to uh, speak about the situation, my brother uh, was still in jail, actually. Thankfully, he was released recently. Um, he was simply trying to work, uh, you know, at, um, you know, within the state of Israel. Uh, he was working at a restaurant and uh, while he was sleeping uh, at his apartment, the Israeli security forces, special forces, they, they came and knocked on the door and they, uh, they arrested him uh, without cause. And uh, he was in jail for 24 days. Uh, without a good reason for two to three days we didn't know what his whereabouts um, you know we were worried sick about him um, and then uh, his his living conditions in the Israeli prison were terrible they were he was beaten up uh, without reason the only reason he was beaten up simply because he was a Palestinian um, so you know, it doesn't matter whether you're a Palestinian Christian or a Palestinian Muslim. The only thing that matters to them is that you're non, you're not a Jew. Um, and that's the problem in the West Bank, in Gaza. Uh, you are not treated as a full human. Uh, the description of a full human, it seems to be only applies if you are an Israeli Jew. Um, you know, I've heard of uh, stories of Israeli citizens who are non-Jews who their citizenship were taken away from them simply because they shared a post on Facebook or on social media. Um, so, you know, like, you know, because I have family members in the West Bank, I, you know, since the start of the recent conflict, I did, I was scared to share anything on social media. Uh, because I was scared that they, you know, the Israeli government and the army would retaliate against my family members. Um, you know, like there is a lot of pressure on Palestinian Americans uh, here in this country. Uh, you know, we we fear that our First Amendment is being compromised because you cannot criticize the state of Israel's actions uh, in Gaza, in the West Bank. Um, there are recent laws that have been passing around the U.S. that criminalize uh, criticizing the state of Israel or saying anything bad about the state of Israel. Um, you know, so it's it's a it's scary time. And the the issue is uh, the narrative. The narrative that the Israeli government has been trying to uh, introduce uh, is talking about a conflict that started on October seventh, two thousand twenty-three. The conflict did not start on October 7, 2023. It started in 1948. So that's where the beginning of the story. So the story did not start on October 7, uh, 2023. Uh, uh, Youssef, um, could you talk a bit about administrative detention? Uh, typically, uh, 
standards of law and legal practice uh, do not provide or are opposed to arbitrary or indefinite uh, detention. Uh, Palestinians, however, are subject, uh, as I understand, to something called administrative detention, uh, where they uh, do not have to have the charges made known to them. Mm -hmm. uh, they uh, uh, can remain in detention, uh, typically in prison facilities, for as long as uh, the Israeli authorities uh, keep them uh, detained for several years in, in some situations. Uh, I, am I understanding the use of administrative detention uh, correctly? Yeah, absolutely. What you described is absolutely correct, but I want to add a couple of points to it that it's not, a, you, know, uh, a, you know, a case that's specific to one or two cases. There are more than 3,000 Palestinians who are detained in Israeli jails, uh, you know, using that premise, which is administrative detention. Uh, you know, it's it's in a way uh, for them to hold onto the prisoners, to interrogate them, to try to obtain information, perhaps without having any evidence against that individual. And oftentimes, it's because their relatives are activists, uh, or uh, they're trying to obtain information by coercing that person to give out some information that oftentimes they don't even possess. Um, so it's a common, commonly used practice in Israeli, uh, Israeli prisons. Um, you know, like in, in this country, we are used to, uh, you know, uh, having, you know, if you're, if you're going to be detained, there is enough evidence. Uh, there, it's not based on evidence. Like, you know, I, I have personally experienced that with my brother who was put in solitary uh, uh, rooms that are tiny uh, on in rooms that have like insects that were you know pretty much eating his his skin while he was you know sleeping uh, you know like bed bugs you know he left the the he was in 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 Israeli prisons uh, for 24 days he lost 25 pounds within 24 days because he was given you know like pretty much one meal per week uh, to survive on. And, you know, the, you know, like the, the he, he left the Israeli prison looking like a different person. Uh, all of his skin was, was infested with infection. Uh, you know, if I show you the pictures, you will be discussed from what, from what I saw. Like he had to seek medical help immediately upon his release. He, was released without his documentation, without his ID card, because he was scared that the you know the Israeli uh, persecutor office would would seek uh, to reopen the case after the judge told him you know he already served enough time and he can he can leave. Uh, uh, it, it's 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 not it's not the legal system we usually see here. You know, although the legal system in the U.S. is not perfect but it's nothing near evidence-based uh, legal system. Uh, Josef, uh, as you think with some sense of hope about the, the future for Palestinians uh, in the Middle East, 
what will it take uh, for both Palestinians and Israelis to live with freedom, security, uh, and uh, a belief in the future? My family, my family and I participated in, in, in many programs, you know, like peace programs, you know, with Israelis, especially after the Oslo. And, you know, even in high school, I participated in programs trying to like find a common ground. Uh, but, but what it seems like that the, the Israeli governments, they are the officials in the Israeli governments and the political parties are becoming more and more radical. And they, you know, they have to be held accountable. And it appears that only the United States can hold Israel accountable. And currently there is no political will uh, in the US to hold Israel accountable, especially that the Israeli government is trying to control the narrative that the whole conflict started on October 7th, uh, you know, which is untrue. Uh, you know, like they're trying to control it and they're trying to, you know, use that whether it's either you are with us or against us. Um, but any hope for the future has to be, you know, like U.S. military aid, U.S. aid to Israel has to be conditional. And it has to be conditional that they will be using this aid uh, in a respectful way, especially to human rights, to Palestinian human rights. Uh, thank you, Youssef. Uh, uh, please remain with us. There may be some uh, questions after our final uh, presenter, and let me introduce her now. Her name is uh, Annie Kaufman. Uh, Annie uh, has been a leader in the Chicago chapter of uh, Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, in the past, she served on the national board of uh, Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, she teaches uh, the Talmud and uh, Yiddish, uh, and she spent uh, this spring uh, living and working uh, in the West Bank, uh, working in collaboration uh, with Palestinians through the Center for uh, Jewish Nonviolence. Uh, Annie, thanks for uh, joining uh, with us this uh, evening. Uh, Jewish Voice for Peace has been both praised and vilified uh, by the U.S. Jewish community. And uh, indeed, during uh, recent congressional discussions, there have been proposals made uh, to define uh, anti-Zionism as uh, an anti as anti-semitism uh, can you talk a bit about the difference between uh anti-zionism and anti-semitism and then also talk a bit about uh jewish voice for peace uh its founding and uh its purpose yeah, I'd be happy to. Thank you so much for the invitation and the opportunity to hear from other speakers and meet with you. Um, so the way that Josef just concluded is very much at the core of Jewish Voice for Peace's work. Um, we agree that 
the Israeli government has to be held accountable for their crimes and that the U.S. as the U.S. government as the primary funder and enabler of those crimes is um, the, the actor who can play that role. And so um, we take the responsibility for shifting U.S. culture um, and policy. Um, the idea of Zionism is very much a response to European anti-Semitism. Um, and so it, it developed in Europe um, on a European model of nation-state formation and militarism and um and zionism was one answer to the threat of anti-semitism so if you equate anti-zionism with anti-semitism you're basically accepting the proposal that Zionism is the only response to anti-Semitism. But the way I see it is that um, Zionism was built on the same principles of European anti-Semitism, about being very firm about who is a member of the nation state and who is excluded from the nation state, who has access to power and sovereignty and who needs to be um, forbidden from, from those benefits. Um, there are other ways to counter anti-Semitism. Um, one framework that is popular now and a driving force in JVP is human rights foundation that all people um, have the right to freedom, sovereignty, dignity, and it's not based on identity. It's not based on race. It's not based on religion. It's just inherent in every human being. Um, other responses to anti-Semitism is like a fierce ethnic withdrawal from participation in anti-Semitic anti culture. So that could be like religious fundamentalist that doesn't, um, doesn't turn to nation states or militaries or relationships at all with non-Jews, but is a very like insular, only in relationship with the people and with God. It's also not Jewish Voice for Peace's answer, but it is a legitimate response to anti-Semitism that is not Zionism and is not anti-Semitic. It's just not sustainable or responsible because we live in a world with many people, thank God. Um, so that's how I think of the distinction between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. Um, yeah, that 
that having a nation state is not the only way and not even a good way to deal with anti-Semitism and that um, that it will be better for all people if we can lean on each other and understand the threats that um, that face all of our communities. Anti-Semitism is one of the foundational threads in white supremacy. And so um, we should be in coalition with all communities who are fighting against white supremacy. Annie, uh, you've been a, a, a leader nationally and uh, in the region with uh, Jewish Voice for Peace. Uh, what, what motivated your involvement? And then also, uh, what motivated you to spend uh, time uh, working with uh, uh, Palestinians uh, uh, through the, the Center for Jewish Nonviolence? Sure. So um, it always comes back to your mother, doesn't it? <laughs> um, my mother was born in a displaced persons camp after the Holocaust. And um, she was born as a twin. So these two, these two babies were born in American territory without citizenship in Germany and um, came to the US. My grandparents are Zionists or were the blessed memory, but um, didn't want to go to another war. And so they came to the US and um so it's very much a post holocaust family but these daughters kind of went in different paths my mother um like embraced the multiculturalism of new york city where she grew up and she became a real opponent of nationalism um and that's my mother and then my aunt um really went all the way into Zionism as the answer to Jewish safety, um, moved to Israel and married into a family that had been there for 500 years since the Spanish expulsion. Um, and so my first cousins live in Israel and are very deeply rooted to a lot of family there. And that's a big influence on me. So as a child, I traveled to Israel a lot and heard a lot of messaging about that's where Jews should be and that's the Jewish future. And uh, I never, I just never believed it. Um, coincidentally, I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts. Sheila Peltz-Weinberg was my childhood rabbi. Thank you for bringing her in. And um, growing up there, I had an awareness of the, the genocides and the displacements of um, white settlement. And there was something that always like felt familiar being in Israel. and looking out for older villages. Um, and yeah, so I was always kind of like ready to get in the movement. I I grew up with a lot of messaging around social justice and anti-racism. Um, 
it fit. It, it just, it took a while until I found the movement and my community. And so um, I joined JVP in like 2012. Um, it, it was really just building into a national movement at that time. It had, there had been many formations in many cities of Jews opposing the occupation um, through the 90s. And then one of those groups in the San Francisco Bay Area decided to like amalgamate all the different communities around the country into a national organization. And we've been growing since then. Thank you. Uh, uh, let's move on to comments or questions. Uh, Naveen and Larry, oh, please, did you have something else? Oh, you wanted to ask about how I got to Palestine this year. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Thanks. Yeah, I just, I had, um, the last time I had been was for my grandmother's funeral. And that was uh, like 2013. And no, sorry, 2017. And I was like, oh, I can't stand it here. I'm not coming back until the boycott's over. And then I, I just decided this year that that is not actually like a responsible way to stay a committed, knowledgeable activist and that I needed more experience and relationships. And I had spent time in the West Bank before, but I wanted to get um, a, a stronger base and do something really materially relevant. And just my takeaway from there was the, the beautiful faith and consistency and respect with which the Palestinian communities in Masafariyata work. And, um, and likewise, like the relationships that they've built with consistent Israeli presence um, was just really heartening for me. It was really important for me to meet the, the especially the Israelis who spend consistent time there. Um, they're really necessary and um, rare because Israeli culture makes it very difficult. Well, uh, thanks for at least that glimmer of uh, hope. Uh, Naveen or uh, Larry, as my colleagues, uh, uh, questions or comments uh, you would have for uh, Youssef or, or Annie, or, or just your responses uh, to their uh, presentations? Um, I, I would like to respond, uh, first of all, by thanking all of you for sharing your experiences and, and thoughts with us. Um, I, I agree with the idea that um, Israel has got to change its behavior. Uh, the Israeli government has to change its behavior, has to be accountable for uh, the crimes it has committed. But likewise, Hamas. Um, Hamas wants to, apparently, according to what they say, kill all the Jews. What can be done about that part of the problem? Yousef or Annie, jump in.
Yes. So, you know, Hamas is is, is the it's a reaction to a uh, you know a seventy five year old occupation. You know, it's you cannot equate Hamas with the actions of the the strongest military in the Middle East. Uh, you know, like if you if what what Hamas did, uh, you know, is the attack they 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 did on Israeli citizens. Israel can go and retaliate against Hamas members, not against the whole popula- Palestinian population. You know, the, it cannot be like collective punishment against the whole population of, of Palestine. The little children uh, who were killed and they are being killed on daily basis, you know, within only the, 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 the past 50 days, more children were killed than the whole conflict of Ukraine and Russia for the past two years. So the force that has been used by Israel is not proportionate to what happened on October 7th, in my opinion. Um, uh, and in addition, I don't think we, we have the whole truth about what actually happened on the 7th of October, since there are so many reports that are coming out you know, from Israeli media saying that m- more than 50% of the victims of that attack were actually killed by the Israeli military itself because they were uh, they were trying to destroy uh you know i don't know like they were just uh confused in a way of what happened after the attack that they actually killed their own citizens so we don't actually know the whole truth about that attack but to justify you know killing 16,000 people in gaza 70 more than 70% of that is civilians uh, because of an attack on October seventh, it's not. It's, this is not. It's not appropriate, in my opinion. I, I completely agree. I, that's why I began by saying that Israel has to be held to account for its actions, um, which are totally unjustified. But looking ahead, how do we get to a place where these two groups of people can live together in the way that? apparently they did before this division of the country um the israeli government has to change its behavior but what's going to cause the uh, people of hamas to change their behavior in my opinion hamas is an idea it's not it's not only a political uh, party it's an idea and that idea flourishes when human rights are being violated in Palestine and Gaza and the West Bank. So if you want to, uh, you know, get rid of a radical idea, it's better to go to the root cause. And the root cause of the conflict in that area, in Gaza and the West Bank, is the Israeli occupation. And the, you know, the violations of human rights by the Israeli military day in and day out. So... You know, the, the the root cause is the occupation. It's not Hamas. It's not Hamas. Hamas was yeah, it's a political party created in 1987. So to just talk about it in terms of Hamas and radical Islam, it's not it, it's it's not it's not right. Now, Naveen, uh, any comments or questions from you? Yes, I do. I want to thank our guests very much. Um, I think it's remarkable that we're actually hearing from Palestinians five five discussions into the series. Um, Busif, I wanted to ask you, you said that originally you didn't want to post anything on social media, etc. 
um, what has emboldened you now to actually come out and talk to us? Or is this a, a safe place you feel? What has changed? Do you feel anything has changed in the environment that you feel more comfortable coming out and speaking out? And um, for Annie, I have a question, but I'll listen to mm -hmm. safe. Yeah, to, to be honest with you, I, I would have canceled my participation if my brother was still in prison. You know, the, the fact that he was released, I, I, I kind of gave, gave me comfort and more courage to speak out. And the agony that my family went through while we didn't even know the whereabouts of my brother, uh, you know, and, you know, the pain I noticed in my mom that she didn't know where her son was. Uh, for for more than three days, uh, and then after my brother is released, I see like his skin. You know, he, he lost so much weight in a matter of twenty four days. He was beaten up day in and day out because apparently his work permit, while he was within the state of Israel, like was. Uh, canceled without even notifying him that it was canceled and based on that he was arrested he was just simply working you know he was doing double shifts at uh you know in, in a restaurant in nazareth you know he was working hard actually he was he was working hard to be able to to come to the u.s to visit me he was he had a an appointment uh like a you know a, a, an appointment at the american embassy to come here on a visa to visit me on the, during the holidays to celebrate Christmas with me. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think that's actually one of the reasons he was released so fast, because we told his attorney mm -hmm. there that he was he didn't even have the intent to stay in Israel because he had a, you know, a visa appointment on on December, December 8th. Uh, so that's one of the reasons he was released. Uh, otherwise, he would have faced six months in jail for simply being in Israel illegally, quote unquote. But he had a permit and the Israeli government just abruptly, because after the war started, they abruptly, you know, canceled all permits without proper notice. And based on that, they imprisoned them. Uh, so the fact that he was released pretty much to answer your question gave me the, you know, the more courage that. There won't be any retaliation against him. He's not in Israeli hands right now. Um, well, I'm glad for his safe return. Well, um, thank you. Um, Annie, um, so it's obvious that JVP is in it for the long haul. You, Your group has been active for many, many years in the U.S. And um, you did mention that one of your main goals is to change policy in the U.S., um, how far away are we from this? I, I don't see any change in policy so far. Um, what is the strategy here? I mean, the demonstrations and occupying, you know, Statue of Liberty and Grand Central Station, mm -hmm. all that good stuff. But um, uh, we are not really seeing any change in policy. We started a um, 501c4 um, organization maybe three years ago um, and so we have scaled up our congressional and state political organizing by a lot um, and we are now like a presence on Capitol Hill where um, it's it's clear to everyone in Congress 
that APAC is not the only way to see policy with Israel. And, um, and there, I, I'm not going to disagree with you. I'm not going to contradict you that like there's not change, but there is much more talk about conditioning aid now than there ever has been. Um, that is, it is a, a now a piece of vocabulary that is at play in the State Department and in the Democratic Party. Um, there are 60 Congress people who have called for a permanent ceasefire and diplomatic solutions. Um, JVP Action, our C4, has the relationships with the Congress people who introduced the ceasefire resolution. Um, we played a role in, in writing that up. Um, so there is movement, there's a lot of energy for it. Uh, we had a lobbying day in June that I participated in. We visited 70 something Congress people. Um, it's, it's hard because it's always frustrating doing that kind of lobbying and we take it seriously that we must change U.S. policy and we're doing what we need. I commend you for what you're doing. I didn't mean to criticize. I just want to see change yeah. sooner. I well, do uh, too. <laughs> uh, with that, I think our uh, time has uh, come to a close. And uh, with Annie's comment, uh, it does allow us to end uh, with a, a spirit of hope in this uh, holy season for Jews and, and Christians. Um, a hope that uh, there now is our discussions around conditions on USAID to Israel, uh, that uh, there's a sizable number of members of uh, the Senate who have called for a ceasefire. We're aware that many of them have been called anti-Semites uh, as, as a result of uh, their uh, proposals. Uh, but uh, these are elements of, of peace, elements of uh, hope uh, that we've not seen heretofore. So with that, uh, we wish everyone a happy Hanukkah, a blessed uh, Advent season, and uh, look forward to your participation uh, next uh, Thursday uh, in our final program. Uh, in this series. Again, thanks for spending time with us this evening and a special thanks uh, to uh, Annie and to Youssef. Good evening. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much.